so what people are doing now is essentially exposure therapies, but with MDMA. And instead of requiring, say, months of therapy, they're seeing benefit in as little as three treatments without the discomfort associated with typical exposure-based mm -hmm. therapies. So there are studies that are ongoing. It's really, really exciting. And hopefully that will make treatment of PTSD quicker, more long-lasting, and a lot more comfortable. Beyond Depressed is a mental health podcast for people who want to know the science behind emerging treatments and if those treatments are right for them or a loved one. New therapies using psilocybin, magnetic stimulation, ketamine, and medical marijuana are bringing people much needed relief. Together, we'll take a deep dive into depression and how therapy medications and drugs can help you feel better. Beyond Depressed is hosted by Dr. Jeffrey Grammer. Dr. Grammer is a decorated retired colonel with the United States Army and is currently serving as the chief medical officer for Greenbrook TMS. He has experience in psychiatry, internal medicine, and behavior neurology. The following podcast is for information and educational purposes only and should not be considered official medical advice. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Grammer. What is PTSD? How do you know if you have PTSD? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm joined again by Joe. Hello. So thank you for coming back. So Joe, what is your understanding of what PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is? So when you say that, two things come to my mind. One is you know, just given the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, it is war PTSD. So soldiers have an intense experience in combat and then they get home and they hear a loud noise and they kind of freak out. So that's one. And then the other is like a more common PTSD, I guess, where somebody had a bad job or had a bad breakup with somebody. And there's certain triggers that make them really anxious that are related to those things. So that's, that's what, you know, if you ask me, that's what comes to my mind. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's definitely a good place to start. Right. And indeed, because war is traumatic, we most classically associate PTSD with that phenomenon. And indeed, it was after Vietnam that the idea of PTSD got better crystallized. It's, it's had other names in the past, you know, shell shock and battle fatigue and so forth. But, but now we've sort of defined that as a constellation of symptoms that can occur after a traumatic event. And so you can have PTSD develop from any either direct or indirect trauma, not just war. And indeed, you what know- What would be an indirect trauma? If you witness someone dying, even though you weren't necessarily at, at risk, like a good example is that's a little less common, I think, that people recognize is if you have a sick one that you're caring for with terminal cancer, right, and you care for them all the way to the end, there can be a PTSD phenomenon from that and things that trigger that, like calling out, seeing the bed, the smells of the sheets and things like that can exacerbate or, or kind of flare intrusive memories of that. So can you it, define it? What's an intrusive memory? Yeah. So with PTSD, we typically think of three broad categories occurring after this trauma. One would be intrusive recollections of that trauma. And that can be in the form of nightmares. That can be flashbacks where it's not that someone reminisces about it, but they have this very 
powerful memory of it that gets triggered by some other stimulus that is out of proportion to what would be appropriate in that situation. Okay, would this be an analogy? Because I think everyone's had this experience. Like you smell something and that smell just reminds you of something from a long time ago. So, but is it like that intensity of sudden of an experience, right? Because I think everybody's had that where they're just caught off guard by a certain scent, like it brings back a memory. Is it like that intense and sudden of an experience? Yeah. And, and actually but more negative probably. Well, smells can actually trigger, can be one of the things that triggers as an intrusive recollections. And part of the reason is our smell system or refractory system actually is tied to memories. So that's why like if you grow up and someone cooks the same holiday Thanksgiving dinner, like if you smell that same smell of like cooked, I don't know, turkey or whatever, it'll bring back not just the memory of it, but it's, it's almost like the emotional valence you had from those, right? So olfactory in particular is very good at eliciting that more crystallized memory of something, including the emotions that come with it. So yeah, you get these intrusive recollections. Nightmares are a real brutal one, but even a car backfiring on the street and some soldier may, you know, not just kind of duck down and be like, oh, is someone shooting? But they may actually suddenly remember being in a circumstance where they witness a shooting or being shot at. Another part to it is this idea of hypervigilance where the fight or flight reaction gets super twitchy, if you will. So tapping someone on the shoulder, for example, could result in a startle response like, oh my gosh. And for some people, and this is, I think a lot of people don't realize this, irritability is part of hypervigilance, right? Because you're in that fight mode, right? And so a lot of people will become irritable to everyone around them when they have PTSD and they don't know why. And they actually feel remorse for, for you know, having oh, difficulty So irritability that. is just kind of like a low-grade aggression? Yeah. Yeah, all the time being like, you know, what are you talking, you know, and, and just temperamental, mm -hmm. if you will. And then the third thing is avoidance of things that remind you of that trauma. And that can actually be avoidance of a lot of stuff. And, you know, we typically would think of it like you don't want to watch war movies if you've been through war. Or you don't want to read a story about a sexual assault if you've been sexually assaulted. But the other thing that happens is people can actually withdraw from the world around them. Try to get into that safe space, if you will. So you're avoiding anything that might kind of trigger you to get into that protected little corner where like no one's going to be able to surprise you or anything. And as you can imagine, that can be very problematic from a functional perspective. So side question on this, what is the thinking about how this process developed in the brain? Because it seems like humans probably evolved in a very dangerous environment where bad things probably happened pretty often. What causes the brain to respond so strongly to things that, you know, sexual abuse, things like that aside, but war has been a part of humanity forever. People, accidental death forever things like that forever. Why does the brain have such a tough time with it? Well, it's adaptive in an unsafe environment. So I think the listeners know I've done a couple of tours to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. And a good example is if you were the rear vehicle in a convoy, they would have a gunner and they would have this sort of escalation and use of force um, that they would have to follow as part of the rules of engagement. So if a vehicle is coming up upon you, you have to do like a visual verbal warning, a shot in the air, a shot in the engine block, and a shot at the driver, right? And the decisions to get through that have to happen in a split second. And so you need to be able to go from zero to 100 lethality, like instantaneously. But if someone's being a jerk at you at a bar, okay, 
in this society, you can't have that same zero to 100 lethality. So what was adaptive overseas in a combat zone suddenly becomes maladaptive in a lawful, safe environment. Mm -hmm. So likewise, if you were a cave person and you had to go hunt and you were battling food with like tigers and bears and stuff like that, yeah, you need to be on guard. You need to be twitchy. You need to have that zero to 100 lethality. But now that we go to the grocery store and we pick stuff that's been prepared for us and so forth, you don't need that same thing. So I think some people think that some of this is almost a maladaption to the safety and security of a predictable, modern, lawful society. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So what may have been good 10,000 years ago, what works in a war zone still creeps through in modern society. You might experience a tragic accidental death. You might see something bad happen. But the issue is like you really don't live in an environment where that's very likely to happen repeatedly for most people. Right. And I think when it starts to cause problems with your functioning within society, within your job and within your family, like that's the problem. What are the because I'm going to guess this is like most of the issues we've talked about. What what else is on that checklist of criteria that have to be met before it's actual PTSD versus just like, you know, we use it as a slang term? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of people talk about having some mild trauma, like, oh, my traffic was really bad today. I don't even want to drive tomorrow. It's like post-traumatic stress. And I think it's become a vernacular. And, and that can be good and bad. On one hand, I think it normalizes the phenomenon of PTSD. On the other hand, it dilutes out the severity of the illness. Are those on the same spectrum of thing? Well, or are they just actually very different things qualitatively? That's a great question. And I think it depends on the individual. I do think life has trauma associated with it. And that trauma does shape our expectations of the present and the future. But the real defining criteria is when it becomes problematic, when it is causing you to function less well or experience a significant degree of distress. So I think a good example is, well, let me back up a little bit. So absolutely, there's sort of like a normal variant for trauma. If you're walking down a dark alley in the middle of the night, your threat vigilance is going to be higher, right? But if you're walking down a busy city street, you don't want that threat vigilance to be so high that you can't focus on where you're supposed to go. Mm -hmm. You can't relax. You can't be in the moment. So it's, it's all a matter of degrees. And I think there's certainly spectrums of severity for PTSD. What's interesting is, and, and this is an important point, I think we have these criteria for PTSD, but it probably is quite inadequate because... What someone who grows up with a history of like physical or, or sexual abuse experiences, what someone who has a singular sexual assault at some age, or someone with a life-threatening motor vehicle accident, or a soldier who's been deployed overseas, what each of them is going to go through is going to be a little different. And yet we use the same diagnosis to describe all of them. So when you look at literature like this, it can be really problematic because you can't take a study from, say, a civilian trauma like an automobile, or sorry, a, a plane wreck, and the people who go clean that up, often the, the rescuers of a plane crash will have PTSD. You can't necessarily extrapolate that to the warfighter, right? And so we haven't gotten to a place yet where we've really kind of divvied up the different sub-classifications of PTSD. But the way that I think about it is there's sort of some salient features to most PTSD that has different degrees within these categories. So one is the existential trauma. If you experience something that should not have happened to you, you're mugged on the way home and get your wallet stolen and get beat up, right? How you see the world going forward is going to change, 
right? Because suddenly something happened to you. You did nothing wrong. You didn't deserve this. It should have been safe and you got hurt. So then how do you approach the rest of life? Why do these things happen? Where is the justice? And you can imagine even in war, it gets worse, right? Why did the good guy live and the, or sorry, the good guy die and the bad guy live and so forth? I mean, there can be horrible things that happen in combat that just defy kind of the logical rules that we're used to. A second part to PTSD, I think, is there are changes in the brain. And when we look at people with PTSD and look at their brains, there's volumetric changes, meaning that the size of different areas can change over time. There's endocrine changes, meaning levels of cortisol can fluctuate over time. And that can actually, we think, lead to some of the neurologic phenomena that promotes this intrusive recollection, kind of circular thought, or the hypervigilance to a degree because it gets triggered. And then the third part kind of goes back to the hypervigilance, and that's the autonomic instability. And there's a lot more research going into this now because we can measure something called heart rate variability, which measures the beat-to-beat variability between different heartbeats. And normally, that will fluctuate when we breathe. When we breathe in, it actually will increase the amount of blood flow into the heart. The heart will typically slow down as a response. But when your adrenaline is constantly up, it actually narrows that beat-to-beat variability. So whether you're breathing in or not, your heart's kind of always a little bit ramped up and so it beats at that same amount. So it decreases beat-to-beat variability. That's a sign of like an overly active fight-or-flight response. And that can be an issue for some people where they just get triggered way too happy. And I think for each person with PTSD, there's various levels of severity within each of those categories. And unfortunately, that does potentially dictate how they should be treated. So with PTSD in particular, and kind of more than a lot of other psychiatric illnesses, I do think that the treatment needs to be individualized to that individual's trauma and manifestations of the disease rather than here's the one pill we give for PTSD, get better. So what are the standard treatments for PTSD? So there are two drugs that are currently FDA cleared for the treatment of PTSD. Those are sertraline, which is Zoloft, and paroxetine, which is Paxil. There are other drugs which have also shown efficacy but don't have FDA approval. Venlafaxine, for example, would be one, particularly at doses like 150 milligrams or less. So we talked about this in the antidepressant episode, but the antidepressants also have anti-anxiety effects. Is it the anti-anxiety property that's helping mitigate the impacts of the PTSD? So... I think the common thread in this is it's serotonergically related. And we do know that serotonin can impact both mood and anxiety and regulate an area of the brain called the limbic system. And when you increase the amount of serotonin being communicated between the nerves, it tends to quiet down some of the overactive areas of that limbic system and bring down the tenor of anxiety, whether it's triggered by memory or environment or what have you. So yes, I think there's some overlap there. Um, But unfortunately, For a lot of PTSD, a med is not going to fix it all. And indeed, though paroxetine and sertraline got FDA approval, there have been other studies that kind of throw some water on the enthusiasm of how well they work. And they can help diminish all three spectrums of the hypervigilance, intrusive recollections, and avoidance that we talked about, but it's not nearly as robust as we would hope. So practice guidelines and even my own opinion would recommend that psychotherapy, particularly certain forms of psychotherapy, also be part of a comprehensive treatment plan. It's going to be hard to get better with from post-traumatic stress disorder without some form of psychotherapy to help navigate through that. And what are the effective types of psychotherapy for PTSD? So most of the types that have been shown to be effective have some form of what we call exposure therapy. So our bodies are kind of wired to eventually begin to ignore 
a sensory stimulus that is in our environment. Because otherwise, if we maintain attention to that, we can't focus on what we're trying to focus on. So if you were afraid of heights, for example, and I put you into a glass box and uh, you know suspended 30 feet off the ground and kept you there for a few hours, your fear of heights would actually begin to diminish. Mm-hmm. And so with PTSD, there are different ways to do this, whether it's with EMDR, which is the eye movement, you know, sort of rapid desensitization or exposure, just good old fashioned script based exposure therapy or, or even something called cognitive reprocessing therapy all have different variations of this exposure. And I, there are different theories of how this works, but one of the better ones that I've kind of read about and kind of seen is this idea of reprocessing. So when we bring a memory into conscious thought, when it gets restored as a memory. We almost kind of bring it out of the memory, mm-hmm. fiddle with it, and then restore it. If you can take away some of the anxiety from that memory, it gets restored with less emotional valence. So what these exposure therapies will try to do is get you to bring up the trauma, but maintain a low level of anxiety so that when it does get re-encoded, it brings less of that emotional valence with it. So this is kind of the equivalent of if you watch a horror movie one time, everything that pops out of you is scary. If you watch the horror movie 15 times, by the eighth or ninth time you've watched it, you know exactly what's coming and it has less emotional impact. You're still aware that a ghost popped out, you know, and drugged someone under the bed, but it doesn't have the same thing. It's not a surprise. Your emotional response to it is decreasing at every exposure. Yeah, or roller coaster ride, an- another good metaphor. You go on it once, you're like, holy cow, that was awful. You go on it again, you're like, okay. So why does it take ther- – so if the problem with the intrusive memory is the memory pops up, that would mean that the person is experiencing that memory hundreds or maybe even thousands of times. Why outside of a therapeutic situation doesn't – why doesn't the emotional valence lower on its own? Because you got to disconnect the anxiety from it. So if you have an intrusive recollection, you're bringing anxiety with it. A lot of people often feel a level of distress. And then when that gets reprocessed, it goes back with that emotional distress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is sort of an exercise that's done over time in a therapeutic environment where you're teaching someone, whether it's mindfulness or what have you, or repetitive grounding or whatever technique you want to use to kind of help bring that anxiety down that allows for it to be reprocessed with less. Does this tie into this psychological concept of, of integration, that, that traumatic event? is you haven't fully processed it or worked through it yet. And so it kind of exists as the separate piece of your experience of life and of the world. And it kind of jumps out at you. You push it back, jumps out at you again. And then by processing it through and taking away the emotional valence, it becomes integrated into like any other memory or any other part of your life. Yeah, I think that's a good point because trying to make sense of the nonsensical is 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 hard and that can create this sense of sort of existential crisis you know it is for the warfighter for example it is hard to go overseas and see things and experience things that shouldn't happen and then to come back here and rejoin what is for the most part a, a calm peaceful lawful society with the predictability about it and then say well why do these things happen in the world right and how do i how do I live in this without feel like I'm disrespecting the sacrifice of others to feel like mm-hmm. I'm not? And beginning to sort of existentially navigate through that, I think is important. And this is where the listeners out there, I think it's really important that you find a good therapist with specific training and trauma-based therapies. Because 
there are some people who will say, well, oh, I, you know, went to school and I learned about exposure therapy. So we're going to write a script. You're going to read it for me. We're going to practice some deep breathing while you do it. And we're going to do this every time. But if, if somebody watched their buddy bleed out five feet from them, but they couldn't get to him because they were under direct fire, they still have to work through that. They still have to forgive themselves for being in an impossible situation. Or let's even say it's worse. Someone makes a mistake and they're not paying attention to the road and they slam their car into another car and fatally injure the other person. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to figure out how to move forward from that. And you can't just do this exposure script. So I agree with you. I think a good, wise therapist is not only going to help someone attenuate some of those things, but say, how do you make sense of your life going forward in a way that integrates this experience to reestablish sort of the integrity of who you are and how you see yourself in the universe. So that's the therapeutic part. So we've discussed pretty routinely at this point in the podcast, there's talk therapy. This would be this exposure therapy is not exactly talk therapy. It's a, what do you call that category of therapies where there's no medication or anything involved? Psychotherapy. Psychotherapy. Yeah. So we discussed the medication options. What else is available? Is there anything emerging for PTSD treatment? Yeah. And I think there are some cool things out there. Like one is virtual reality based therapy. So again, I'll, I'll use the military just, and I want to be very clear, there are a lot of people out there with non-military related post-traumatic stress disorder. This is an easier, cleaner example to go by, though. It's much harder to use an example of somebody who's been molested as a child for 10 years. And the the military example is cleaner. People get it. Yeah. And I think, it's, yeah. like, candidly, it's been in like more movies and stuff like yeah. that. So, so people can resonate with that. So I'm using that example. And so one thing would be a virtual reality base. So there's a uh, research ongoing and there are some providers who provide essentially call of duty using the kind of VR mm-hmm. glasses and they use these kind of cannons that sit on the base and they actually hold this rifle that then gets tracked in real time and, and they'll recreate, they'll actually design the traumatic event and have the person kind of play through that over and over again. So those are exciting. So, but all this is how do we best facilitate this exposure-based therapy? Because for a lot of people, when you bring up that memory, it can be very, it can be very uncomfortable. And a lot of people will actually drop out of exposure-based therapies because they can't tolerate it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's evidence-based and yeah, like the Veterans Administration kind of recommends that as kind of a first line. But for a lot of people, like I can't do it. And I've seen patients all the time who come to me and say, I saw a good therapist. They were trying to get me through this, but it was just too uncomfortable. So one of the neat things that's out there kind of sticking with this idea of uh, things that had previously been used recreationally and now are being revisited as potential therapeutic modalities would be MDMA or ecstasy or Molly. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually pretty exciting stuff. So one of the things that MDMA does is it will quiet down the anxiety area of the brain called the amygdala. And so typically when we bring a memory with us into the conscious thought and conscious mind, the amygdala will activate and manifest that anxiety. But you can accelerate the reprocessing without the anxiety if you just shut off the amygdala. And that's what ecstasy does. One of the reasons why it's been used as a party drug is because it eliminates this sense of any kind of worry and people are completely at peace with their environment, right? In addition, it may help with things like oxytocin, which it helps us with, and that's the same thing that gets released when women breastfeed, but mm-hmm. people have studied that as well. Sex, hugging, physical contact is a release of petting your dog. Bingo. Exactly. And so it may increase this empathic 
connectedness to others, which can be a huge problem with PTSD where people feel out of touch, out of space and misunderstood by others, right? So what people are doing now is essentially exposure therapies, but with MDMA, and instead of requiring, say, months of therapy, they're seeing benefit in as little as three treatments without the discomfort associated with typical exposure-based mm-hmm. therapies. So there are studies that are ongoing. It's really, really exciting. And hopefully that will make treatment of PTSD quicker, more long-lasting, and a lot more comfortable. So let me kind of see if I have the mechanics right. The, the amygdala if I'm recalling, is one of the things that's firing at you when you're watching cable news, you're on social media. It's that burst of negative emotion anxiety. I know in a lot of social science research, that's what's at play when you're mean tweeting on Twitter is the amygdala is being <laughs> fired up. In a party situation, it's useful to calm the amygdala down because your social interactions are likely to be much kinder, much less conflict-based, much more cooperative. If you add the oxytocin element, you're likely to make friends quicker, which is why people do this drug at parties. And if you can shut that down for a period of time while you're recalling painful or difficult memories, you can then process that memory without the painful or difficult aspects associated to it and then condition your brain not to have this over-the-top response every time it surfaces. Yeah, because again, when you bring that memory out and then you restore it when it's done being manipulated in your conscious thought, it goes back without the emotional valence with it. So kind of like your olfactory thing you mentioned before, when we store memories, we will often store it with other valences, whether it's sensory valence or emotional valence. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's the way our brains are designed. So when you shut off the amygdala, you're taking out the emotional valence from the memory. So the next time it's recalled, it no longer has that anxiety response with it. So are there other drugs that are similar to that? So you mentioned, you know, we talked about antidepressants having anti-anxiety effect. Would that also be the case then with memories when you're on an anti, or is that the theory behind, say, like Zoloft or what was the other one you, you had said, Paxil? Paxil, yeah. Is that when you reduce that anxiety response in the amygdala, you can then just process through more memories. You can have memories that don't make you feel sad or feel negative emotion, neurotic emotions. I think probably there's a more basal modulation of that anxiety and fear that comes with the antidepressant. So it's not so much that you're having that same mechanism where you're then bringing it up and then restoring with less anxiety, but it's just kind of taking the thermostat overall and turning it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And particularly serotonergic agents, they can be associated with an overall sense of calm. If you look at couples that fight and you give them Prozac, for example, fluoxetine, there may be actually less animosity in a couple if they're both taking it, regardless of whether or not they're depressed. So there may be a part to this where it helps just kind of placate the severity of uncomfortable feelings of anxiety and rage. So diving deeper into the memory piece, and this is a little bit down a rabbit hole, does the, if you take away the emotional valence of a memory, are then you also less likely to recall as quickly other related memories with the same negative emotion tied to them? 
So let's say you have PTSD from perhaps multiple events and they chain against each other. So you remember one thing in Iraq that recalls a thing from another deployment that recalls a third. If you're able to break the emotional valence on one, does that then prevent the other two from being chained up to it? Yeah, I I don't know that anyone's going to give you a real clear answer on that yet. I think it's polytrauma certainly is a problem. And we do know the more traumas you have, the more- There's like, a word for it, po- polytrauma? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the more traumas you have, the more likely you are to develop PTSD. And you see that with deployments all the time. People will be fine the first two and it's the third that gets them. Or if you have a history of childhood trauma, you may get through that okay, but then you get deployed overseas and then everything gets reactivated all at once. Pandemic is a great example of this. So the pandemic is- horrible when it comes to exacerbating PTSD because you now have an unseen threat that's constantly around you that you can't completely mitigate that's there all the time, mm-hmm. right? And so that's going to increase that threat vigilance that's going to resonate with any kind of trauma you've had in the past where you felt vulnerable and unable to protect yourself. And people's physical proximity to you is perceived as a threat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if you quiet one, does it help quiet the others? I think that's an interesting thought. I don't know that anyone can definitively tell you that yet, but it does make sense. And we do know that if you begin to treat PTSD holistically like that, then whether it's a singular trauma or a polytrauma, it doesn't have to be so compartmentalized, right? You may get a synergy of benefit. And part of the reason for that is, you know, one of the ideas with PTSD is that there's a, a generalizability of the stimulus that creates that intrusive recollection or kind of recurrence of the memory. And the more you can bring that down and get rid of it. So some forms of exposure therapy go back and try to clarify what you went through. So it's burning rubber, for example, from a tire that caught fire or something. So anything that then smells burnt may do that. Well, you want people to understand that, no, this was a burning tire from your automobile accident on this date and not all burning rubber. Mm -hmm. And you're clarifying that. So I think anything that can help someone better crystallize and integrate that memory as a circumscribed event rather than a holistic phenomenon in their life has a chance of overall improving any kind of trauma they've had in the past. So this is an area where the brain being a pattern matching machine actually works against you because it's patterning all burned after that one specific burn tire, for example. Yeah, I I think one way that people have described PTSD is it's a uh, deficit in forgetting. Interesting. Yeah, you just, you can't move past it. You get stuck in the past. I was going to, one last question on that. Is there, is there truth to this idea of collective PTSD? So you mentioned the pandemic for generationally for me, like, I don't know, everybody in my high school watched 9-11 happen live on repeat for an entire day. Is there this idea that potentially millions of people could be traumatized at one point and you could have millions of people with PTSD walking around from from one mediated event, not an experienced event. Yeah, so you can have vicarious traumatization, right? Where you witness something where people die, people get hurt, people were even at threat of dying, and that is traumatic for you. One easy place you see that is in caregiver fatigue, right? So um, we'll take the pandemic again. You have healthcare providers who see people every day of their career not do well and do well, but the volume and the senselessness of the death from COVID-19 has just finally overwhelmed them. And so you have an entire kind of population of healthcare workers now that are struggling with how to make sense of that all, mm-hmm. right? You know, World War II, there certainly were 
large swaths of the planet that were impacted by the war, either directly or indirectly, that it's going to change how they see the world and how comfortable they're in it. Then there's also a very intriguing thing that has a lot more work to be described. But oddly enough, there is a bit of a genetic sort of passing of this trauma. And that's some really kind of interesting and sort of mind-twisting research where if you look at Holocaust survivors and descendants of that, then their incidence of PTSD may actually be higher, even though they were never directly affected by the Holocaust. And we don't, we don't entirely understand this kind of genetic memory, but I do think that the consequence of population-based trauma may actually precipitate down. And this is, again, controversial, so I'm sure there are people who well, I think Disagree. I've I've heard of a study where something similar is replicated in lab rats. Teaching a lab rat to be afraid of something also ended up being passed down to its offspring that had never been exposed to that negative stimulus. Absolutely. And there's a biologic mechanism of epigenetics, which is like a whole nother hour, where the way that we kind of unfold our genetic material and encode stuff may allow for something like that to occur. So it's not so much that you're changing your genetic code, but what you're changing is the way that code is expressed. Like the apps that are operating, so to speak, yeah. in the genetic system. Yeah, 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 exactly. Is there thinking that in the future, PTSD and other things like this may be treated through gene therapy? That is not something I have heard a lot of work on or about. I think gene therapy in general... What I think is going to happen with gene therapy, honestly, is we're going to see that a lot more for things like genetically acquired diseases, like cystic fibrosis is one area where mm -hmm. like that's like super cool stuff, right? Then we're going to start to see that unfold in cancer. I think the thing with PTSD that makes it so hard is kind of like depression. There are multiple variables that lead to the manifestation of the disease. So there's not some single gene locus that says, aha, this is the PTSD gene. And that's one of these reasons why it's not a silver bullet. There's no like target where we say, this is what went wrong, as opposed to an abnormality in division of cells that then leads to cancer. This goes back to your orchestra example, where the orchestra playing the right sheet of music is, you know, it's the same sound no matter what, but there's almost an infinite number of ways the orchestra can, can go bad and play the wrong music because yeah. the woodwind section goes awry or the percussion section goes awry. So I, before, I know we're getting close on time here, but before we end, I do want to kind of make a plea out there to all the listeners. PTSD can be extremely debilitating for patients, for the family of patients with PTSD, for friends. And a lot of people suffer in silence. A lot of people feel like no one is going to understand their plight. They weren't there. They didn't experience it. And there is help of, that can be available to you and you don't have to suffer. You do want to find somebody who does have training in taking care of people with PTSD. That is not always an established competency of every single program that's out there, right? So you, you need to talk to somebody who's been doing this or was trained in it. And while it can be uncomfortable to start, you can come out the other side a whole lot more comfortable, a whole lot more peaceful. What you don't want to do is drift down that path of increasing isolation and maladaptive behaviors like substance use or aggression or criminal activity or what have you. I cannot tell you how many people, how many patients I've seen who come to me after they've left a trail of tragedies that are a consequence of their trauma 
And then patching that all back together becomes a lot more complex. So please reach out for help. So is that why the substance abuse becomes a problem for people with PTSD? Yeah. I mean, a lot of folks will tell you at night, like they don't want to dream. They don't want to think about it when all the stimuli goes away and they start lying in a dark room at night. And so they will drink themselves to unconsciousness. But that has real kind of psychological and physiologic consequences that are unhealthy. So last couple of questions to close out. And I'm going to guess I know the answer to this. You probably cannot treat yourself with street molly for your PTSD. So there's a good reason why. And I, I know I've, I've talked several times about don't use street drugs. Molly is particularly dangerous. Okay. Getting pure pharmaceutical grade Molly is almost impossible right now. It is very likely to be cut with another substance like methamphetamine and fentanyl. And that candidly can kill you. Don't do it. You also shouldn't do that without the construct of the therapy that we just talked about. The training for this stuff does not come from like an afternoon seminar. Like people go to school for a long time to learn how to do this. And so you're going to want to do this with where you know the exact dosing that you get in a controlled setting with a therapist who's been trained specifically how to do this, not on your own with your buddy who's a nice person. <laughs> that seems to be the rule for a lot of the uh, treatments we've discussed. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> So any other questions? Uh, no, I think we're good. All right. Well, again, Joe, always appreciate you coming on to the podcast here. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I think the last uh, podcast we have coming up for this season is going to be for medicinal uses of marijuana. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to Beyond Depressed. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, make sure to follow the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Beyond Depressed is shot and edited in the Trailway Studio at SDS in Tallahassee, Florida. Special thanks to Greenbrook TMS. See you next week. This program is for educational purposes only and should not be considered or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This program does not constitute the practice of any medical care or advice. None of the products or services discussed in this program suggest endorsement for your unique health care needs. The views expressed in this podcast are the views of the host speaker. Therefore, we advise listeners to always seek the advice of a physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions regarding personal health or medical conditions. If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem or condition, please contact a qualified health care professional immediately. If you are in the United States and are experiencing a medical emergency, please call 911 or call for emergency medical help on the nearest telephone. 